Welcome to Cinematicon Ex Mortis, the horror movie discussion podcast hosted by Kenny and Heather. And today we are talking about The Student of Prague uh, from 1913. It's a German film, so the original title would be Der Student von Prague. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually have a ton of stuff. If you, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the show notes, Heather. I did. Uh, I have like way more stuff in the basic facts section than usual. I saw that and I started to skim it and I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to let Kenny tell me because this is already like really, really. It's a lot. It's pretty heavy. Yeah. Um, So normally we don't really go into the, I guess, history of the movie, like how it was made too much and like the stories of all the people that were involved all the other movies that they worked on and so on and so forth because you could kind of just do a six degrees of kevin bacon and talk for hours without ever actually getting to the movie itself if you wanted to um but with this one i just got really interested in it i guess i just started just trying to do my due diligence of looking up some of the key figures and stuff like that and i just found such interesting stuff that it made me dig deeper and i found out like oh everybody who worked on this was like all fucking each other like they were all (laughs) there was all these like complicated relationships fleetwood mac of horror movies yeah yeah they're like they're all related and they all i mean and they're they all have these crazy life stories because i mean this is made in 1913 so I guess most of their stories are about what happened after, right? Like this is mm-hmm. right before World War One, and then there was the rise of the Nazis in World War Two, and they were all involved in that in some way. Um, and uh, so, I don't know. I, I think I saw a social media post not that long ago that was uh, kind of saying, you know, for everybody who's complaining about living through 2020 and like, oh my God, how is it that we have to deal with this coronavirus and everything that's going on? It was just kind of saying, like, imagine you were born in 1900. Um, yeah. When you were in your teens, that would be World War One, And then in 1919, that was the Spanish flu, which killed maybe 50 million people. Um, some several percentage of the world's population, way bigger than the current thing that's going on. And then by the time you're in your 30s, the Nazis are rising. Uh, when you hit 40, World War II is going on. That's going to kill another, you know, 50, 100 million people. So people back then, pretty much regardless of who you were, like you saw some shit. Mm-hmm. You lived through some shit. And uh, and these people did. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'll talk a little bit about this and we can discuss, I guess, um, before we get to the actual movie. Um, so this is a German silent film released in 1913 and it's a movie that i haven't seen many people discuss online our podcast this may be like a first like the first time a horror movie discussion podcast has done an episode on this film Um, i don't know but that i I don't really see people talking about it um no people it's rare for people to to be fans of silent films let alone like even you know passably like usually when you you tell someone like oh i'm gonna watch a silent film they're like why like 
I don't know many people who are are fans of silent films, basically. Yeah, and I think horror movie buffs tend to know a few. Like, everyone knows Nosferatu, which we already did an episode on. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But once you get past those few, like, super iconic, famous movies, The Phantom of the Opera from 1925 Phantom with Lon Chaney having the, the mask mm-hmm. taken off, um, once you get past those, yeah, there's there's very few people that just go and watch in the same way that you would watch like some random movie from the 80s without really knowing what it is. Mm-hmm. Nobody's doing that with movies from the 19-teens, uh, except, you know, people that are just really into silent movies. Right. Uh, which, what drew, so what drew me to it wasn't that I saw other people talking about it in the horror movie space. It was a search for the earliest full-length or a feature-length horror movie. Like, I was wondering, like, what is, like, the first horror movie? Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, horror movies have been around as long as movies have. Um, like, if you can go back to, like, the 1890s and find little two-minute-long shorts where somebody is, like, dressed up like a skeleton dancing around, and it's like, okay, I guess that's a <laughs> horror movie <laughs> by some definition. Right. Um, but... Uh, but what was the first feature length one that has survived? Because there, of course, could have been earlier ones that we don't even know about um, that that's... are lost. Like 90% of all the movies that were made back then are lost. That's sad. I don't like that at all. Yeah. Um, it's super sad. I mean, some of the movies that are lost are like really historically significant. Um so that sucks but yeah. uh you know what is like if you want to go through and watch chronologically all the great horror movies like where would you start what is the earliest movie you could watch um and t- as far as i've been able to discover this is it this is from 1913 i haven't been able to find anything from this year or earlier that still exists and that's you know feature length like around an hour or longer right um there are things earlier like um, a lot of people know there's a 1910 Frankenstein um, by Edison's film company, but that's like 10 minutes long. So yeah, so there's lots of shorts, but I think this is the first feature length film. Um, and I would love for somebody in our audience to show me I'm wrong, like show me an earlier movie because I would watch it. I wish you wouldn't um, open that can of worms, but okay. <laughs> but um, I think... For those in the audience who are probably in the majority who are like, uh, do you guys have to watch such old films? I think we can promise you that this is the oldest film we will ever do on the podcast. <laughs> so everything after this will be a, a, at least more recent than, than this. Um, so, okay. So this was directed by Stellan Ree with a screenplay by Hans Heitz Evers. And it stars Paul Wegener, Greta Berger, and Lita Salmanova. So this was a popular film, apparently, because it got remade in 1928, and then again as a talkie in 1935. Um, so while it's now sort of forgotten and you don't hear about it, at the time, in the 20s and 30s, it was like, you know, everybody was down with Student of Prague. It was like... Student of Prague t-shirts, Student of Prague posters in college dorm rooms. 
It's oh, that yeah? kind of thing. Is that what it was yeah. like in 1913? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, yeah, it was a bit of a cult movie to start, so 1913 is a little early for the okay, posters sorry. and T-shirts. That's the same mistake that uh, Stranger Things made when they have the little kids have like an Evil Dead poster in there oh, on their wall. And yeah. it's like, or was it The Thing? I think they had The Thing poster on their wall, and it's like, it's the show takes place in 1982, so it's like, no human being had a uh, thing I poster think it, on their wall in 1982. I think he did have an Evil Dead. I think he was Evil Dead. Hmm. What? Either way, that would have been, you know, kind of the same thing. It's like it, those things take a while to kind of seep into the popular yeah. culture. Um. So I'm just joking about this movie being a cult movie. I don't know how successful it was financially, <laughs> um, but it apparently did okay because they remade it several times. Right. Um. So about the people who made the film. So the screenwriter is interesting. So Hans Heinz Evers. Uh, he was a successful writer of horror fiction in German. Uh, his novel, Alrauna, in which a mad scientist kind of character artificially inseminates a prostitute with the semen of a hanged man. I hate it. I hate that a lot. I hate that very much. You hate when people inseminate prostitutes with semen from hanged men? I mean, yeah. That's horrifying. What the fuck? It's based on the legend of the mandrake have you ever heard of that no i know what mandrake is yeah it's like a root mm -hmm. that supposedly looks like a person yes mandrake root mm -hmm. it's right very well, powerful spells yeah so if you're interested in occult stuff then you might be interested to know the sort of legend behind the mandrake which is the idea that the mandrake grows underneath the uh, gallows where they hang people Ooh. because when when people get hanged it causes them to uh, have an erection and ejaculate and the semen seeps down into the earth oh, and it, okay. it grows into a into a mandrake <laughs> the little homunculus under the ground okay um, not touching any more mandrake roots and they have magical properties I guess uh, but uh, that is based on a real phenomenon which is that uh people who are hanged do sometimes have erections um but it's because of like the blood mm -hmm. just going down into that part of the body after they've been killed um so yeah so i guess evers was kind of inspired by that weird legend and he and also by the novel frankenstein mm. um because uh, the cr the creation that comes about from this, I guess, attempt to create like the worst possible person, um, is is the title character Alrauna, who is a beautiful woman, but she has no sense of morality, and she she commits various crimes, and ultimately she gets revenge on her creator, the Mad Doctor. Good. Um, and uh, this novel was also really successful it was adapted i think three times in the silent era and then twice in the um talkie films so uh yeah people were really into this story in, in germany right. later in life uh evers the screenwriter became an ardent supporter of the nazis and he wrote the screenplay to a propaganda film 
about the killing of a heroic stormtrooper by the communists. Nonetheless, Goebbels didn't like him, and most of his books were banned. So he kind of ended up on the outs with the Nazis. What? So he um, was like a like a wannabe Nazi, and they were like, "Yeah, he was like, can I come to the Nazi you. party?" <laughs> yeah, it's really that is it the was really... most pathetic thing I've ever heard in my life. That's yeah. like fucking um, Lee Harvey Oswald wanting to be like part of the KGB so bad. Anyway, don't worry about it. Keep going. Yeah, I guess I guess part of it was that he wasn't anti-Semitic enough for them. Like he had had a Jewish mistress, and he he I think maybe the character and I think yeah the main character in his novel, which is kind of like a autobiographical character, also has like a Jewish girlfriend. So the Nazis were like, nine, nine. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know, he's, he's, he's kind of like the German Edgar Allan Poe or something like that. He, all of his stories are like really weird and fantastical and dark and strange. So I think he, his whole like vibe of, of being weird and subversive didn't sit well with the Nazis. But he was really into eugenics, which you can kind of see in the story of Alrauna, that, that idea that if you put together you know, uh, as parents, really people who are criminals, a convicted murderer and a prostitute, then the child will ha have like those properties inherently. Um, so I think that was what drew him to the Nazis, like this project of making a perfect race. Um, but yeah, uh, so he died in 1943. And since then, I think, you know, he's He's become one of those figures where uh, maybe you could say like H.P. Lovecraft in the English speaking world where it's kind of like he's influential on sci-fi and horror fiction. But at the same time, people are like, he's pretty racist. And yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so like I think a lot of his books are out of print now and, and hard to find and stuff like that. Um, So. Uh, that's that guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Flawless so, segue there. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, so there kind of is a segue. Another person involved with this film had a very different relationship to the Nazis um, because Greta Berger, uh, who plays one of the main characters in this film, uh, was Jewish and she was actually killed in the Holocaust. She had fled to Rome and she was arrested there uh, in 1944 and she died at Auschwitz. It's fucking horrible. So yeah, it's an, it's crazy to see like decades later, you know, these people's lives going in, you know, be both involved in this yeah. horrendous tragedy um, on opposite sides. Um, so back in 1913, when this film was made, uh, Greta Berger, had been in a relationship with the film's director, Stellan Rhee. At least some sources that I read said that, although other sources say that Rhee was gay. Um, so he was actually Danish, not German, but he had left Copenhagen to work in the German film industry a few years earlier after he had been jailed for homosexuality in 1911. So hmm. um, who knows? Maybe he was bisexual or whatever um uh but i'm pretty sure that 
story about Copenhagen and going to Berlin. That is true. Um, so Rhee then joined the German army when World War I broke out in the following year, in 1914, and he ended up dying during the war uh, as a, a prisoner of the French. So that's the director. Then we have the main actor in the film, Paul Wegener, who plays the title character, the student. Um, and he is a really important figure in German silent cinema and the history of the horror genre because he went on to direct and star in a trilogy of Golem films, only the third of which, 1920s, The Golem, How He Came Into the World, survives today. So someday maybe we'll do that. Um, that's a movie that I was waiting so long for it to come out on Blu-ray. I was checking the websites all the time and looking it up, and it finally came out this year, and I, I pre-ordered it. And uh, so I've just recently seen that on Blu-ray. It's really cool. Uh, it's a really neat movie. It's so uh, cute. But that's, that's the third Golem film, and the first two are lost. So that's an example of how like even really significant films are often lost from this period. So... After the Nazis came to power, uh, Wegener continued working as an actor, including in propaganda films, uh, though he was reportedly unsympathetic to Nazism. Um, confusingly, when you're trying to research Paul Wegener's relationship to the Nazis, if you Google Paul Wegener Nazi, there actually was a different Paul Wegener who was an SS officer. Um, so, which I, I find so such a like weird coincidence right because the movie is all about a paul wegener having another paul wegener running around who's oh like the evil God. version of him and like and then in real life there were there was another paul wegener who was oh. a nazi and so um that's kind of like weird that. i don't like that <laughs> uh -uh. it was an, it was autobiographical oh no in in advance yeah um so yeah so he kind of collaborated with them in that sense uh and then after the war the soviets put him in charge of revitalizing the german theater uh, his final role on stage was in nathan the wise uh, which was the famous play from the 18th century by lessing about the need for religious toleration it was a play that had been banned under the nazis uh, he died in 1948. Uh, finally lita salmanova was the Czech actress who plays the sort of mousy, creeping character Ladushka in The Student of Prague. Uh, and she was Wegener's third and sixth wife. Oh, okay. I'm into it. So he had, he had six different marriages. He married her as his third wife and then again as his sixth wife. And they were married at the time of his death. Uh, she survived the longest of all these characters. She died in 1968. That's interesting. So, so yeah, complicated people, uh, and yeah, that's a lot. There's a lot going on there. That could be. They should make like an HBO docu series about that, because that's a ton. Yeah, like I want to read a whole book about like silent German cinema. <laughs> I think we're interested in two very different things mm. i'm like ooh, well, the I, drama ooh, all the well, relationships no, I mean, ooh. and you're just like well it is it is dramatic like it is 
I, I feel like we're talking about the same thing. Oh, like okay. This world of the of the theater where everybody knows each other, or the, the early German cinema. It's like these people all know each other. They're all such interesting weirdos, and mm-hmm. they are all screwing each other, and they have weird political ideas, and in a way, they're kind of a lot of times out of step with the larger German public. Mm-hmm. Um Kind of like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Cabaret. I, we watched it together. Oh, my God. If you're playing Cinematicon Ex Mortis Bingo at home, there you go. There's your we watched it together quote for this episode. Oh, my God. You're just trolling me at this point, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So I guess we should eventually get around to talking about the movie. Uh, so I'm going to do the <laughs> plot summary here. Uh, spoiler alert for anybody who still hasn't gotten around on watching this, but I mean, come on, you've had 107 years. <laughs> Catch up. Yeah, it's like spoiler uh, alert. Oh, yeah. 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 We're um, going to get canceled I think, for spoiling the movie. Yeah, after 105 years, I think it's fine to start talking I about I think the we plot. just made it. Um, so the year is 1820, and. Baldwin is the best fencer and wildest university student in Prague. Perhaps due to his excessive lifestyle, Baldwin is also penniless. Meanwhile, the Countess Margit is being pressured into marrying her cousin, the Baron Waldus Schwarzenberg. As she literally flees from the Baron on horseback, she loses control of her horse and is dumped into a river. Baldwin, who happens to be passing by, rescues Margit and she presses a locket into his hand. Clearly, the Countess has taken a liking to Baldwin, but she's way out of his league, financially speaking. Luckily, the strange old man, Scapinelli, offers to make a deal with Baldwin. He will give Baldwin a huge sum of money to sign a contract giving Scapinelli permission to take anything he likes out of Baldwin's room. Baldwin signs, and Scapinelli beckons to Baldwin's reflection in the mirror, which steps out of the mirror and follows Scapinelli out of the room. At first, things seem to go well for the reflectionless Baldwin, as he is now able to pursue a relationship with Margit. But things go awry when his reflection begins committing wicked acts in Baldwin's place. Okay, so that's my summary. Good job. Thank you. Really good. I worked really hard on it. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> um. So, uh, what did, what did you think of the film? Um, I liked it more than I thought I was going to. First of all, I didn't look into it at all. I didn't read a synopsis. I didn't, I had I went in blind completely. Um, so, you know, I think it's like the first probably f- 10 minutes is not horror centric at all. So I was just like, oh when's the horror part going to come? And it was like such a dramatic scene when it shifts from like a regular movie into the horror aspect. And I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, he's coming out of the mirror. And it's just like, he, he just looks so creepy when he's walking out of the mirror that I really like that scene a lot. Um, I feel like it didn't, the ending was a little mm, 
But other than that, like I liked, I liked a lot about it. I think it was a really interesting concept and I didn't expect it. So I think people should go into this movie blind because that it definitely has a really cool, like, you really don't know what's coming. So, mm. and I really so liked. Just rewind this podcast and don't, yeah, ha- don't, don't have listened to don't it. Don't do that. But you can show it to friends and stuff, you know, and be like, you should see this movie and, you know, don't, <laughs> don't listen to this podcast called Cinematic on Ex Mortis. Um, and I really mm. like the, the um, use of like the, the poetry and stuff because they were really good poems. Like they're really sh- short, whatever. They're like little snippets, but it it made it really creepy on a different level that you don't see in modern films. So I don't know, I really like the music. I really like a lot of it. I like a lot of it. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I think I, I, I really agree about the scene where the reflection steps out of the mirror. Like that's such a fascinating moment to me, and like you can almost see it like reverberating out through the whole rest of horror movie history. Like, I I can't see that without thinking of Sadako crawling out of the television screen in in Ringu. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. It's like it's like the th- the thing that you thought was just an image that was just an appearance, uh, maybe part of the world of art it's it's sort of it breaks that wall between art and reality and between appearance and and real life and it just turns your world upside down yeah i i could i rewound it and actually watched it a second time like that's how much it affected me where i was like i need to see that again (laughs) yeah it's it's really good it's the best scene in the whole movie, I think. In a way, I think it you could see it too as like a culmination of like where where movies had had been up to that point because a lot of those early movies from like the 1890s and early 20th century are like really interested in like trick photography, like mm-hmm. various things that you can do to make it look like like there'll be a guy and then like there's just a poof of smoke and he just disappears because obviously they just cut to a shot where he wasn't in it, you know? Like, they can make people vanish in a way that you couldn't in an actual stage show. Um, and so this movie is playing around with uh, filmmaking tricks like that. Like, essentially, these are these are diopter shots, right? Like, wh- where, um, uh, you know, if the film quality was good enough, you could maybe see the little line in the middle of the screen where they've um, shot the scene twice, once with Paul Wegener on one side of the frame and then the other with him on the other, and then they've combined the shots. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think Wegener in particular was really interested in those kinds of um, effects. He uses them in the Golem as well. It's, I don't know, it's kind of cool because here we're seeing cinema starting to take those sort of magic tricks that you can do and weaving them into an actual story like an extended story that has themes and that has depth to it um as opposed to just a tiny little short 
where it's like, ah, the guy was there and then he's gone mm-hmm. or whatever. <laughs> so that's pretty neat. So yeah, you're talking also about the, I guess, epigraph. Like we have like a, a text, a, a quote from a poem that opens the film and then I think it appears again in the middle of the film and then we get the full mm-hmm. version at the very end of the movie. And it's a quotation from a poem by Alfred de Musset, which is a poem called The December Night. And um, so I can read a little bit more to give a little more context. Um, There's this guy, he's like a a lover who's been abandoned or something like that. And he's um, complaining and it's long and boring. And then at the end, uh, it says... But in the dark night, suddenly... Oh, and this is... I'm using the, the publicly available translation, so it's kind of archaic and it rhymes and stuff, but this is what we have. Uh, but in the dark night, suddenly, across my curtain flits a shade. I see a form glide noiselessly. It comes and sits upon my bed. Who art thou then, so pale and grave, grim presence clothed in solemn black? Sad bird of passage, what wouldst have? Art thou a dream? Or do I rave? Or does the mirror my own shape give back? Mm. Who art thou, specter of my youth? Pilgrim, whom nothing tires, alas, why do I find thee still, forsooth, within the shadow where I pass? Who art thou, solitary guest, devoted friend in every woe? Oh, tell me, pray, at whose behest my wandering steps thou followest? Who art thou, brother mine, I long to know? And then the thing answers. My friend, one father have we both, no guardian angel I in truth, nor yet the evil fate of men. Those whom I love, I never know along what path their steps may go, in this earth's dreary little fen. I am no god, nor demon quite, and you entitled me aright when you the name of brother gave. Where'er you wander, there shall I, and when your time has come to die, I'll come and sit upon your grave. Heaven has entrusted me your heart. When you have trouble to impart, seek me without disquietude. I'll follow you along your way. But touch your hand, I never may. My friend, my name is Solitude. And that's the end of it. Yeah, I feel like that is very Poe-esque. Yeah. Which kind of, you know, fits in with the theme, so... Yeah, so another inspiration was probably Poe's story, William Wilson, which also has to do with a doppelganger. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this poem does, it feels very Poe-ish to me too, like when he's saying, you know, he's like asking all this que- these questions to the silent figure. Mm-hmm. He calls him a, a sad bird of passage. So that reminds me of like the raven. Yeah, I was getting major raven vibes from this. Um, so, and then the thing says at the end, my name is Solitude, which isn't included in the, in the movie. So I think the movie, by leaving that out, it, it, I guess, leaves it more open as to what the figure represents. Right. And I guess that's the next thing I wanted to talk about is like, what do you think Baldwin's reflection represents? I think it's another reference to the shadow self, like we talked about in, I think, 
the cat people episode? Yeah. We talked about it in another episode. I think it was cat people. I don't know. Um, but I think that that's... I mean, that's what a doppelganger is, right? Is not necessarily your shadow self, but like your dark side. Like a dark mm. version of you, which is just like one step away from being your shadow self. So I think both both of those things both a shadow self and a dark side of yourself yeah like either or you know yeah so it does go off and like the the evil act that it commits is it murders the the baron von schwarzenberg mm -hmm. who is the who's Baldwin's rival for the affections of Margit. So I could definitely see that. And he's been sort of told not to do that, right? He's ha he's going to have a duel with the Baron and the Baron's father comes over to Baldwin's house and like pleads with him to not kill his son. And so we don't see what he decides to do. He seems to be on his way to the duel at when he encounters his, his double coming back from the duel, having already killed the Baron um, but presumably he was kind of debating it with himself whether to do it or not mm -hmm. and the double just goes ahead and does it right. um, so in that instance it very much seems like it's his repressed desires right. you know it's the things he wants to do but he, he knows he shouldn't mm -hmm. so it's the side of him that, that would do the thing <laughs> yes. but what interests me too is like the other times when the double shows up it seems like it usually shows up to thwart his getting together with Margit it's like they'll be meeting in a cemetery which is the most hey safe don't. place to be yeah I uh, I feel like that's exactly what I, I'd be like ooh meet me in the cemetery like that's so something I would do yeah, it's like super romantic. I've also been to a lot of Jewish cemeteries. <laughs> I mm. love cemeteries. I spend a lot of time in cemeteries. Right, so he's he's having this like romantic rendezvous with her, and then the double will just appear, and it'll freak him out, and then mm -hmm. he has to leave. So in those scenes, it seems like, I don't know, like what he wants to do is to get with Margit. So shouldn't the double do that rather than prevent him from doing it that's a really good question i think that like you'd have to really dissect like whether this relationship is a good idea or a bad idea um and like really get into whether you know he should be pursuing her or not and whether that's like quote unquote good or quote unquote bad hmm because she is like a wealthy aristocrat so right. it, it would be like social climbing for him it would be in that sense what he should be trying to do i guess yeah so as opposed to he has like another love interest which is the mousy character ladushka that i mentioned who's always hanging around in the background of all of these shots mm -hmm. uh unobserved by the other characters always observing somehow, them somehow even though she's around. literally right there 
<laughs> yeah, it's not always the most believable <laughs> that they don't see her, but um, she is uh, another like low status character like the student. So it seems like she would be a better match for him in terms of socioeconomic status. So yeah, I don't know. It's hard to like, what would traditional morality say about what, which of those he should be pursuing if either of them? Uh, yeah. I mean, we might understand it better if we were from that time. Like, maybe it would be more obvious to us, like, what the meaning of that is. Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe he's just a dick. Maybe he's just, like, a cock-blocking doppelganger, you know? Yeah. Well, so, on Wikipedia, it mentions that um, Otto Ronk, who was a really important early psychoanalyst, he was a student of Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, actually analyzed this film Ooh. in terms of Freudian psychoanalysis. Well, I think Freud is and a fucking hack, but okay, go go ahead anyway. Well, but I mean, this whole notion that you're appealing to of like the shadow self is comes from Jung, who is another student of Freud. I think that Freud was onto some things, but also way off on others. So we'll mm -hmm. see. So what he says is that the doppelganger is a narcissistic defense against sexual love. So it shows up to prevent him from mature expression of love, is love for the other, love for, you know, in his case, this uh, woman. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, but he has this narcissistic drive of self-love that is sort of pulling him away from that. Okay. Which I guess it makes sense because it's the mirror image too, right? Um, is this um, where the mirror verse so, from I don't Star know. Trek comes from? Hmm, probably. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure how much I that that interpretation makes sense to me though because it's like it's not like he's like goes off and makes out with the double or anything um, uh -huh. <laughs> like uh natalie portman does in black swan um it's more of he's he's horrified by it and he just like runs away um so that doesn't seem to me like he's in love with himself. So I'll, you want to hear my, my theory? Obviously. Well, so I was thinking as I was watching it this time about a little movie that very few people have heard of called Aladdin. <laughs> which is also a story about a, a guy who is poor and who's in love with a rich woman but he knows that she's out of his league and so he makes a kind of magical deal with the devil to get uh magical wealth to then be able to woo her but ultimately there's there's a sort of fraud going on there's a, it's a kind of moral 
trespass to present yourself as someone other than who you are mm -hmm. and so he ultimately has to has to pay for that and because it's a disney film he still gets the girl in the end and everything works out but that's stupid um whereas in this film i think it's a little more realistic so this would be what i would say is the the double is himself it's his it's his real self um so it, by getting the money he's able to present himself as a different person than who he really is and go into this relationship in that way but he's constantly the the double uh, uh confronting him sort of represents him constantly being confronted by the actual reality of who he is inside which is different from how he's being presenting himself and that sabotages his relationship and i would say it sabotages it because he never can confront himself he always runs away um and then in the end he decides to try to kill the real self right he he takes out a gun and fires at the the reflection mm -hmm. and then he, it turns out that there's a bullet hole in his own chest and he dies oops so um i think the film kind of shows two ways of relating to your inner self that don't work one is to try to run away from it and then the other one is to try to kill it when what you have to do is to uh come to terms with it right exactly also which i guess yeah i mean uh, that all could make sense with the the sh it being like a shadow self yeah. too you have to accept all of yourself or you're gonna have a real bad time which is what's happening yeah. to all of us pretty much yeah so it doesn't necessarily have to do with money either right like whenever you you're getting into a relationship with somebody you want to present your best side right like i don't know i recently was reading pascal's ponce which is a 17th century philosophical treatise mm -hmm. um or, i mean it's really more of like a collection of aphorisms and a lot of it is like just trying to prove the existence of god it's where pascal's wager comes from mm. um and i thought that part of it was stupid but <laughs> um there was something in there that i that kind of resonated with me which is that pascal says that human beings are in a uniquely paradoxical situation because because of our self-consciousness so because we inherently relate to the world from a first person perspective from inside our own skin we necessarily have our own interests in mind and are chiefly concerned about that and that includes in, uh, inevitably desiring for other people to love us but also due to the fact that we have this first person perspective we know our own thoughts we know everything about ourselves um or at least we know more than than anybody else um we also know that we are unworthy of love and so we're constantly kind of desiring something that we know is wrong mm -hmm. so i don't know i kind of feel like 
maybe this movie is is getting at that idea that when you get into a relationship there's this constant pull towards deception towards presenting your best side to the other person and trying to get them to love you by acting a certain way but in doing so you're getting them to love not you but an appearance of you something that's not really you and hiding your real self which can then you know show up at inopportune times right that makes sense I feel like the guy who plays the student looks like he's like 50. <laughs> I mean, I know they ha they have like a ton of makeup on because it's a silent film and stuff, but I still was just like, <laughs> every time I hear the student, I'm like, <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Yeah, I wonder how old he was. Um... Probably like 20. You know, they used to look a lot more weathered back in the day. So he probably wasn't even that old. No, I mean, he was pretty old. He was born in 1874. So if I can do some quick math here. He was 40 years old. <laughs> like, 40-year-olds can absolutely be students. Like... Absolutely, but I just... I have heard of that. Yeah, totally, 100%. Probably will be one, but... Um, okay. <laughs> Alright. Fine. It's a horror film. Anything can happen. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a good direction to go in, is like, what else about can we say about the filmmaking as opposed to the story? Um, I thought, you know, it's... You can definitely tell that it's a really, really, really old film in, in the sense that there are so many scenes where it's just one shot. They just set the camera up in one position and then the camera sits there and this whole scene goes on. Mm -hmm. Which I think works really well in certain scenes. Like the scene where the reflection steps out of the mirror. Yeah. The fact that it's all in one shot um, means that we kind of forget that there's this giant mirror in the shot because this so this the scene goes on for so long and there's so many other things happening. Yeah. Um, that we take the reflection in the mirror for granted. Yeah. And thus it's weird and shocking when it I, suddenly yeah, walks out. Yeah, that's like that's yes, that's like perfectly articulated as to like why it's so like dramatic is that it's like you don't notice it at first and then you realize that the reflection is doing something that the real person is not and then you realize he's coming out of it and it's like oh, oh, oh. you know it's like really <laughs> alarming and i just think that that's really cool yeah yeah there's a kind of horror movie obsession with mirrors and mirror images that kind of starts here you could say because mirrors are like kind of a creepy thing mirrors are terrifying like my other podcast is about urban legends and like half of the urban legends that exist have to do with mirrors like mirrors are so scary oh my god also there's that like you know they say that like bloody mary and all that stuff like if you stare into a mirror for long enough like you'll see stuff like you will start hallucinating 
And that's mm. why a lot of the stories have to do with mirrors and things because they are scary and it's like a psychological thing. Like they, you will freak yourself out into seeing stuff in a mirror. It, I, I don't remember what it is about mirrors that make your brain do that, but they do. Hmm. That reminds me of that movie Oculus. Have you seen that? No. Oh, you should check it out if you're afraid of mirrors. And uh, it, it involves, it's basically, well, here's another film we should watch is Dead of Night from 1945. It's another, it's, it, it's basically Oculus is just like an expansion of one of the stories in Dead of Night, which is about a, a mirror that is cursed. Goody. Um, but and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there is, there's something kind of interesting. Like everything that's in the mirror, it has this weird relationship to reality, right? Where on the one hand, if it starts doing something different from what the real thing is doing, that's very disturbing because of course it can't, it, all it is is the light reflecting. So um, that's physically impossible. So it has this necessary connection to what's happening in the real world at all times but at the same time it isn't an accurate representation of the real world because everything is flipped mm -hmm. so it's always a little wrong and a little off you know if you're looking at text it'll be unreadable backwards and so forth right that thing where like it almost looks right but it 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 isn't and that's almost yeah. more scary than something that's just like blatantly fucked up you know, mm -hmm. like the un the uncanny. Exactly, that's way creepier because it's more subtle and it's like you're unsettled and you're not sure why. You're just like, ooh, yeah, you're just like thrown off kilter by it. Yeah, which I think this movie is all about. That it's all about the uncanny. It's all about what something that's unsettling, but not really because it's gonna harm you, right? Like the double never does anything to. Baldwin. It's just freaking him it out. Just like. Yeah, it just, it just appears. Yeah. It just confronts him, and um, it has, like, a creepy look on its face, but it doesn't <laughs> say anything. It doesn't do anything. I think that's pretty realistic, too. Like, if your double was just standing there staring at you with its dead eyes, like, you'd be freaking out. Yeah. I would be, that's for sure. I actually, I like the ending a lot. Like, when he's, the whole sequence where he's kind of being pursued through the streets of Prague by the double like he's running from here to there and everywhere he goes he just sees it well I think what bothers me about the ending is that like the countess just kind of dies she died didn't she die I'm gonna have to google it. I Did thought she die? I thought she or maybe she just collapsed maybe she just collapsed yeah I know she just she just swoons women used to do that a lot I think that's what bugs me it bugs me so much that she's just like such a fucking delicate you know such a fallible creature that she's just like oh something odd is happening I must faint and I'm just like okay I don't fucking... well it's I feel like Baldwin is worse though like I, it, it makes me it makes me laugh that you know he this spectral apparition appears in the room with him and his girlfriend and he's just like i'm out <laughs> and and he just runs and, oh yeah and presumably yeah, 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 leaves yeah, yeah. her with the thing you like, mean what, the, the what cemetery is it gonna do? scene it, it already killed somebody earlier 
Yeah. Yeah, I thought that too. I'm like, um, honey, you need to dump him immediately. First of all, he ain't got <laughs> no money, and he just abandoned you in a cemetery. Well, he has lots of money, but it was oh right, it right, was right, right, right. bad. Does, it was um, yeah. ill-gotten. He has a bunch of money because he's an idiot. Because an, <laughs> a crazy old man clearly was tricking him in some way. Like, have you never read fairy lore in your life? Like, oh, I'll give you all of this money if you let me have anything in your little dorm room, 40-year-old student. You have fucking nothing in here. You have, like, a stupid, shitty Ikea desk and, like, a little, you know, quill and whatever. Like, clearly you have nothing in here that he wants. So you have to understand that he's... I thought he was going to be like, okay, well, the money technically is in the room. So I'm taking the money and I'm taking your hat. I and would... now you have no money and no hat. <laughs> oh man, I would beat the shit out of that guy. I don't care if you're 90. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like he's rich because he's stupid. Like this is your own fault because you should have noticed. Like first of all, if you have to sign a contract... Like, you need to be very careful. Like, he was just stupid. He's stupid. He's... Well, it's him or the cousin, he's... so... <laughs> yeah. Prospects are slim pickings. Oh, yeah, and the cousin died, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then I guess the simpleton 40-year-old student is... My... Look, he's really good at fencing. So... Uh, what movie are we going to talk about next time, Heather? We're going to do The Love Witch from 2016. So, the Love Witch. Yeah, that's probably one of our most recent films. Hmm. It might. It, I, yeah, it will be. It will be our. We'll go from doing our oldest ever to our oh. most recent ever. We should have pretended like we planned that on purpose. Hmm. Cut all this out. Okay. Um. I'm hiding the evidence. <laughs> yeah, so this is a movie that I've seen that Kenny hasn't, so that's exciting. Yeah, it's another first. Right. Um, so This movie is very strange, and but very visually pleasing, and I like it a lot. So. Okay. So I'm going to go into it blind. Yeah, uh, do it. Listeners, you, you can choose to do the same and uh, meet back here at my office uh, in one month and we'll uh, talk about The Love Witch. Alright, is that the end? I guess so. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>